You're invited to the grand opening celebration of Once Upon a Child in Flint, Thursday, August 19th through Sunday, August 22nd. The first 50 families on Thursday get a $10 gift card. Plus, they'll have donut carts, character visits, and a chance to win a $200 shopping spree. The fun continues all weekend long, so find Once Upon a Child Flint online for the full grand opening schedule. Once Upon a Child's grand opening is this Thursday, August 19th. Don't miss out. Once Upon a Child Flint is located on Miller Road. Find us online for details. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Hey, Brent. How's it going? We haven't co-hosted in a while. Right. Been so long. Glad to be back with you on here. Yeah, exactly. So on today's show, we're going to be discussing the underrepresentation of Black women in elected office and the impact that that lack of representation has on the national political landscape. Um, we know that Black women turned out in extremely high numbers in the 2020 election and ultimately had a significant impact on the result. But when we look at legislators, excuse me, legislatures at the, both the state and federal level, it's clear that black women are not even close to equally represented in government. So to talk with us more about this issue in the findings from the recently released and first of its kind report, No Democracy Without Black Women, on this subject, we are joined by two expert guests from the organizations that made the report happen. Crystal Leapart, an operations and policy associate with Nobel. Hi, Crystal. Hi, how are you? And excuse me, I should have said Nobel Women. So Nobel <laughs> Women, uh, National Organization of Black Elected Legislative Women. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Crystal. No problem. Thanks so much for having me today. Of course, of course. And we are also joined by Lauren Belor, the Democracy Director for State Innovation Exchange. Thanks for being with us, Lauren. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. Absolutely. And, and Charlotte and I really want to dive into the findings from your report, you know, hear about what drove you to, to produce this report, how it really affirms some of what we've known for a long time and now have the numbers to back up. And, and frankly, what the implications of this are in terms of having such an underrepresentation of Black women in state legislatures across this country. But before we dive in uh, to, 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 I think, the heart of the conversation, really want to give our listeners some context uh, for you and your organizations and your work. So 
Um, Crystal, if you could just get us started and tell us a little bit about the mission of the, the National Organization of Black Elected Legislative Women, again, also known as Nobel Women, uh, and your work with the organization. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we're a, a national nonprofit organization that was founded in 1985. And the mission is very simple yet complex, which is to increase and promote the presence of Black women in government. Um, so we are representing over the 300 Black women that serve in state legislatures all across the country. Um, we try to provide those women with a network with, the, to, with each other to work on policy issues, um, relationship build, and just share best practices of what they're working on in their respective states. Um, we also have a training element where we work to train and cultivate the next generation of Black women in elected office as well. Um, and we like to think of ourselves as an organization that pushes policies on behalf of Black women, femmes, and girls all across the country um, and really try to set um, open dialogue, if you will, between important stakeholders in corporate um, spaces and community spaces and in policy spaces to curate the conversations that are necessary um, so that we can see that systematic change that our communities um, deserve. And so again, I serve as the operations and policy associate, and really that's a fancy somewhat way of saying a little bit of everything. <laughs> but the, the best part of my job, I think, is um, being able to work with organizations like SIX to bring attention to um, policy issues that um, sometimes don't have a perspective related to Black women and girls. Um, and also um, just expanding the reach as far as the organization goes, as far as our perspective on issues and, and just connecting with Black women legislators that are doing amazing work across the country, but may not get the same attention um, that folks on a national level tend to get. Um, so I'll wrap there and can tie in some more of our work with some of the answers later, but I'm again happy to be a part of this conversation um, and happy to talk more about the No Democracy Without Black Women Project. Awesome. Thank you, Crystal. Um, so, Lauren, I'm going to ask you a similar question in terms of just uh, sharing with our listeners a bit about the State Innovation Exchange. Um, we heard Crystal just refer to it as six a second ago. So if you could share a little bit about the organization and role as a democracy director. Yes. So State Innovation Exchange, or in its nickname, SIX, as we're known uh, across the political landscape, is a national resource and strategy center. And we collaborate with state legislators to generally just improve people's lives through transformative public policy. And that starts with providing legislators with on-the-ground support, um, creating tailored policy research, training, communications guidance, and fostering collaborations between legislators. And that runs across chambers, across regions, across state lines, and alongside grassroots movements. Um, in addition to our organization having a legislative team that houses our state directors in several of our priority states, um, we consist of three primary issues departments, which is our Reproductive Health and Justice Department through our Reproductive Freedom Leadership Council, Agriculture and Food Systems, and my department, which is our Democracy Department. And within our democracy program, I am one of the democracy directors for SIX, where I work um, to help state legislators nationwide champion um, specific reforms for a more inclusive and equitable and participatory democracy, um, specifically providing legislators with services and elevating their voices around policies such as redistricting, criminal justice reform, and rural narrative work, which are my specific um, policy expertise areas, and then supporting my colleagues in our program department on voting rights and defensive democracy work. And I echo Crystal's sentiments about the best part of my job, um, being working with 
um, amazing partner organizations like that of Nobel Women that specifically work um, with certain demographics, especially a demographic that I represent, um, that uh, again, help to elevate their voices even further. Um, we know that marginalization and secondary marginalization, which is things we'll get further into as we talk about the report, are a real thing and we're naming that thing. And so I appreciate organizations like Nobel Women and appreciate Crystal um, and look forward to diving more into that as we go further into the report. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks so much, Lauren. Uh, Generation Progress loves working with State Innovation Exchange and loves the work that you all do in making sure that folks have the resources they need. Um, I know that uh, just working with young elected officials, um, so powerful and so capable, but having to get up to speed on so many issues, um, if it's uh, if they're newly elected to office, um, you are you all are such a, a great resource and a great, um, just a great structure for people to be able to tap into to make sure that um, they have everything that they need. So um, just love the work that uh, SIX does. Um, and Lauren, a, a follow-up question on that. Uh, I know we're going to get a little bit deeper into this as we go further along the show, but um, the report that your two organizations recent re recently released um, that Brent referenced in the intro here, uh, the No Democracy Without Black Women report, is the first of its kind. So what was your goal in putting together um, this report and how did the project come into existence? So a couple of things were the goal, and it's, it's an interesting story because Crystal was my first introduction to a partner organization with SIX when I started back in January, um, first foray. It, it, it really built naturally from um, an introductory conversation that we had with one another and recognizing um, that we were we know knew many black women legislators and we're working with black many black women legislators, but um, that there was kind of a, a cloud um, lingering over of this underrepresentation. And so that, from that conversation, built out um, the emphasis on wanting to do such a project. And some of the goals that came out of that initially were to present a call to action, um, recognizing that, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this further, that they were no, they're contingent on the audience. Um, for many of us who work in politics, uh, especially Black women that um, work in politics, whether a legislator or a political staff, the underrepresentation is not as startling, but more so just used as quantitative evidence of what we've witnessed for decades uh, within the political landscape, but also just in general in America. And this is why we wanted the data to be representative of that call to action. And then also using it as an opportunity to elevate Black women legislators' voices to the forefront and put a spotlight on their policy priorities. Uh, a lot of times, um, some or specific demographics of legislators, their policy priorities can be in the midst of general um, policy priorities that might take place within the legislature, within their caucus, but they do have different representation and they do have very distinct districts. Uh, so that being said, it's important to understand how that intersectionality plays into their policy priorities as well. And then also Lauren, Lauren, if I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we are just about to cut to an, a commercial break, and I would love to pick up on that thread um, right when we come back. You're listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show, and we'll be right back after this message. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets.
Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. Hello. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, and thanks so much for joining us again today. It's a little refresher in case you were not with us before the commercial break. We have some great guests on today. Crystal Leaphart um, from Nobel Women. Hi, Crystal. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, and then Lauren Bielor, the, the Democracy Director for the State Innovation Exchange, um, which we'll be calling SIX uh, over the course of the radio show. And Lauren, apologies again, just before the commercial break, I interrupted you as you were telling us about um, this fantastic new report um, that your organization has put out, uh, the findings um, from the recently released No Democracy Without Black Women report. Um, and I was wondering if you could just uh, continue um, telling us a little bit more about these top line findings um, and what your goal was in putting this report together. Yes, thank you so much, Charlotte. So um, just, just bringing it back. So some of the, again, the top line, uh, really top line findings and really intersecting with the goals here that uh, both six and Nobel women were looking at, um, in addition to presenting that call to action and elevating black women legislators' voices to the forefront, was also amplifying the need for more black women leadership across state legislatures nationally. Um, a lot of times we talk about, um, and by we, general public, <laughs> talk about the need for more black women um, in elected positions or legislative positions, um, but not necessarily talking about what happens next. And this report allotted for the opportunity to talk about what happens next. And it, it came from many, building the narrative out from many um, legislators' voices that are current state legislators, but also those who were former state legislators who have gone on into leadership positions on the federal level. And so bringing it all together kind of shows how um, there's one collective sense of why this is so important and how this underrepresentation um, can either build a pipeline from um, more opportunities in the future, or it can stall if people do not respond to the call to action. Crucial information, crucial report, and also a dire warning. Crystal, do you have anything that you wanted to, um, to add here? Um, yes, really quickly, I think um, in addition to some of the things that Lauren laid out, um, I just want to also put this in context as far as where we are politically, um, as far as the nation goes. Um, so again, we've all been feeling um, this, this interest, if you will, in Black women's civic engagement, um, in the ways that Black women out-organize everybody, out-vote everybody, statistically speaking, um, and are just genuinely engaged in community and in conversations with policymakers. Um, and there's been this outpour of the thank yous and the acknowledgements that uh, we've always been like this, and this has always been the case, but when you level the playing field a little bit as far as voting rights and things go, you can see truly who um, have been the um, spearheaders and gatekeepers of our whole democracy, and that's Black women. Um, unfortunately, that is not translating into the political power that it should be. It's not translating into the policies that we deserve as far as fixing things in our communities for Black women and girls. Um, and I think in context, this report really names that and it really points out um, that Black women are the key to solving a lot of the issues that we deal with in our country. And we know that state legislatures across the country view over 100,000 um, bills and policies and ordinances and things like that. Um, and those perspectives of folks that are most engaged in the process should be there and should be present in when we're thinking about um, solving some of our most pressing issues. 
Um, so we wanted to um, acknowledge that piece as well. But also the reality is people just aren't capturing a lot of the realities of Black women in general. And then on top of that, Black women that are in public office. Um, Black women do not um, have to, they can't take off their skin and their gender and their race and things once they're elected to public office. And we know that Black women um, still have to consider their safety when they're in elected positions. They'll have to consider um, how they're going to be able to afford to even legislate properly when most legislatures are not full-time and don't have salaries. Um, Black women still have to think about their family and their friends, um, their career trajectory, and how they're going to actually um, be um, be able to focus on the legislature while they're in office. Um, and that's not the case with a lot of people that come from um, generations of wealth and money and privileges and things of that nature. Um, so really, how can um, allies and accomplices in the state legislatures also stand with Black women? Um, how can organizations that um, care about women in office and Black folks in office really center their strategies and policies to make sure that Black women um, are able to be um, successful um, once they're elected? Um, and then what is also the transition plan out, right? We want people to have better stories and some members that we've seen that had to leave the legislatures on bad terms because of the threats and the things that they had to deal with. So there really wasn't a dedicated space to really explore the realities of Black women in office um, on a national scale. And I think this report and the campaign that accompanies the report um, really allows for that dialogue to happen um, all at the same time. What are the realities of the state legislatures? What are the realities of Black women in politics and in public office? And how can Black women help bridge that gap between the issues in our communities and the solutions at the same time. Thanks, Crystal. You you said a, a couple of things there that that you said a bunch of things there that resonate. Um, but one thing I just wanted to to piggyback on quickly um, when you were talking about the sort of the the role that generational wealth can play at the state legislature and folks don't listeners may not always be aware, but just how incredibly expensive it can be for a state legislature, a state, for someone to run for the state legislature and how little many state legislators are paid. In a bunch of states, it's not considered a full-time job, even though it's a full-time workload. And so state legislators are making, what, 15, 20, $25,000 annually. Um, and for someone who doesn't come from generations of family wealth or who doesn't have, um, you know, a, a pot of money sitting there to, to essentially live on, and particularly if they have a family that they're supporting or helping to support, um, that, that, uh, that poses a real barrier to getting involved in, in state elected office. Yeah, there's no question. Um, I think that we're seeing it happen in real time where people are trying to weaponize um, Stacey Abrams' debt and things and make that seem, feel as though it's a way that uh, she can't contribute to um, government because of it, or that's maybe she needs to focus on that. Um, but that's a very specific example. Um, the reality is um, Black women are most pinned by student debt. Black women um, are affected by equal pay or lack thereof equal pay issues. Um, Black women, generally speaking, are those frontline workers, um, essential workers, as we're calling them now, um, but folks that are not making the amount of money that they should be making for the work they're doing. So um, there's a whole gamut of things that um, keep Black women from running um, and being successful. And even with that, um, Black women are uh, doubling and tripling in some states 
um, but it's still not equitable to the representation in the state. But yeah. even, even with that, people are pushing through and making a difference and making a change. And hopefully folks like Stacey Abrams and even Congresswoman Cori Bush um, can bring attention to that disparity on a much larger scale than we've seen before. For sure. And, and, and Representative Bush, uh, Congresswoman Bush did that, I think, in, in some respects, just this past week, where she talked about in her advocacy around the eviction moratorium and the, the need to extend that and linking that. Folks tried to weaponize her personal experience to having dealt with a, eviction, and she was able to really utilize that in, in, in turn to um, advance her uh, the cause and, and, and successfully help extend that eviction moratorium. And so that that lived experience is so incredibly important there. When we when we come back from this break, want to talk a little bit more about some of the most um, perhaps surprising findings from the report and what's next for this project. We'll be right back on the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome back. We are talking today about the representation or underrepresentation, I should say, of Black women in state legislatures across this country. Uh, and this is coming on the heels of the uh, groundbreaking, first-of-its-kind report, No Democracy Without Black Women. Um, and we're joined by... Um, Two guests who made that report happen and who are experts in this space, Crystal Lee Part of the National Organization of Black Elected Legislative Women and Lauren Belor of State Innovation Exchange. So thank you both for uh, joining us again today and coming back with us here. Um, so uh, Lauren, just to, to jump right into it, um, the report that came out showed uh, that you that you all released showed things like the fact that eight states have zero um, black women in uh, elected state legislature. That uh, some states that have large populations of black women, including Mississippi, for example, still have significant underrepresentation of black women legislators. And at this moment, so from a with sort of that as the context, and right now where we are in terms of seeing a huge battle for representation and participation in our, in our democracy at the state and local level, what impact do you see Black women legislators having as we face battles like redistricting and voting? So I think there's a couple of things to recognize here um, because you know, as Crystal mentioned, state legislatures consider over 100,000 bills nationwide each year. And where we see in states like um, that of Georgia, that, you know, is a state that has some of the highest number of Black women in the legislature, having 39 Black women. But then we've seen, we've seen the attacks on, um, on voting rights that have taken place. We've seen uh, representatives like that of Park Cannon um, try to have... It's people attempt to have their voices silenced um, through through arrest or through um, literally closing the door in their faces. And so that's important to name and important to recognize because even states with higher a higher uh, 
percentage of representation for that particular um, state legislature still are having their voices silenced because they may still be um, their um, from partisan lines may still be in the minority even within the legislative caucus. Um, and so that being said, it's something important to name because as we have some of these fights such as um, the continuation of voting rights uh, fights and then also aligning that with redistricting because they're really going to go hand in hand, um, it's going to be pivotal that um, we really uplift and support the black women legislators that are doing this work. Um, it's easy to paint a narrative that legislators, and this is whether it's on the state level, local level, federal level, are not really doing anything to champion behind behind certain targeted issues or national issues that are making headlines because people are only seeing the after result. And so it's important while we're in the midst of these challenges that we're putting an emphasis on highlighting the legislators, especially that of Black women that are doing the work, um, because their districts are likely to be the most impacted. It's no secret that there is really more so an attack on Black and brown voters um, and communities of voters coming after um, this recent 2020 year. And so we can't continue to let um, any of these challenges a present a, a, a border or a boundary around us elevating certain policy issues. And there's definitely ways to do that, to see the intersection of how that plays a role in public health, um, criminal justice reform, other election reforms, and then also looking at how that affects everyday economy policy. Um, it will be important to look at the overlap, look at the intersections, and then continue to elevate those voices leading on that. Thanks so much, Lauren. And as you're talking about uh, sort of like looking at um, at priorities um, and what state legislative um, agendas are are and like how they are formed um, and how they are impacted by the people um, who are um, able to get elected to office. Um, Lauren, how does the current underrepresentation across states impact legislative policy agendas? You know, I think we've talked some here about how we've seen Black women legislators um, uh, lead some of the fights um, around redistricting and voting. Um, but what do we, what are we, what do we end up with when um, we have underrepresentation, um, and what um, what gets impacted um, on the policy agendas? So. I actually kind of want to flip that um, because I actually would like to show what happens when there's underrepresentation, but when we're given the opportunities to have power, we do something with it. Um, you know, we do the hard work in communities, and if you look at uh, Kentucky State Rep Attica Scott, she is one of just two Black women in her state legislature, but she introduced and fought for Brianna's Law, um, both in the streets and at the Capitol. And then looking to Georgia State Rep Sandra Scott. She introduced a resolution to declare racism a public health crisis, which was extremely important as we saw it play out in COVID-19, which we did not anticipate happening. Um, it's important that we name public health crisis what they are. Um, then we look at our Maryland speaker, Adrian Jones. Now granted that puts us in the majority um, um, her being the first black and first female speaker of the Maryland House, 
um, gave the opportunity to roll out the state's first Black agenda, which aimed at eliminating racial gaps in health, wealth, which we've talked about generational wealth, and housing, which we've also talked about um, the eviction crisis. And so our challenge then becomes twofold. We must continue to push for representation and reform simultaneously. And I think that's something that the report is trying to highlight. You know, there is no secret um, in the Black community, especially with Black women, that we know how to turn lemons into lemonade. And I think that is what we're also trying to um, push out um, through our organizations, that this is something you can do when you put Black women in the forefront, even when they're in the minority or even when they're one of two, they can still get things done. And that's just giving the opportunity, passing their bills, um, allowing them even to um, not only introduce bills, but elevating the, the bills they introduce. Um, and then also looking to place them in different um, different sectors of policy as well. You know, you have leader Joanna McClinton in Pennsylvania who is leading on prison gerrymandering. Um, and then you have representatives like Sonia Hopper out of Illinois who are closing the gap on the rural and um, narrative divide through urban farming bills um, and leading with an emphasis on agricultural advocacy. These are things, again, that really do change the landscape, so to speak, because it's it's not just about the numbers, it's about what you do with the numbers as well. Um, so again, we need the opportunities to have our voices and the policy that Black women are pushing. I like, I like that. I think uh, that is the exact right framing. Um, you know, uh, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I think we have just another minute here until commercial break. Uh, Crystal, do you have anything to um, follow up on that? Anything you want to add to that? Um, just really quickly, um, I think it's important to differentiate between um, equitable representation and what we're asking for in the report versus tokenism um, as a way to um, uh, elevate Black women in leadership, if you will. Like the whole point of a representative government is to make sure that perspectives are um, present across the board. And we wanna make sure that um, the things that we're talking about on the ground level and the things that we're talking about in policy and organizing spaces make it to the state level. And the reality is when black women advocate for folks, they, they advocate with us at the center for the most part, but it also lists um, everybody at the same time. And if we're going to be um, pushing for these things and pushing for these reforms, we need to make sure that the perspective that helps everybody or the most people at the same time at the margins is what we center and lift as we're doing the work. And again, um, Black women do that. Um, Lauren just laid out perfectly how we're not in the traditional, just in the traditional spaces that Black people are considered being strong in. We're across the board focusing on um, numerous things at the same time. And the reality is, if you look at an issue, there's a disparity that affects us. So if we're going to be the ones that are dealing with the issue, then we also need to be the ones um, being at the forefront and advocating on behalf of the issues as well. Here, here. I think that is something, um, you know, Generation Progress, thinking about uh, young people getting involved in the work um, is 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 necessary um, and having young leaders um, be able to be involved in the work to sort of say, this is what is directly impacting me um, is necessary because that gives nuance, that gives like power um, and that builds 
um, and that builds a, a policy agenda and um, priorities um, that make sure that we have a much more representative democracy and everybody's voice is heard. Um, so again, just uh, really appreciate the, the work that SIX has done um, and this report. Um, and I think we're heading to a commercial break here, but y'all are listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. And we will be right back in just a few minutes. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. We are back. We are back with our fantastic guests. Uh, I'd like to welcome back Crystal Leaphart um, from Nobel Women. Hi, Crystal. Thanks so much for joining us again. And uh, Lauren Beeler, the, Demo- the Democracy Director for State Innovation Exchange 6. Um, and Crystal, I was uh, hoping, based off of um, the work that you all do, and I think um, most of the folks who listen to our show regularly know that Generation Progress's audience um, is 18 to 35-year-olds um, and engaged and politically involved 18 to 35 year olds. Uh, Do you have any advice, um, Crystal, or suggested resources for young Black women who are interested in running for office? Uh, I mean, the data that has been presented in this report um, clearly demonstrates that there's a lot of work to do. um, And I think uh, people want to know what next steps that they can can do if they want to personally um, take the first step themselves. So I don't want this to be discouraging. No, no, absolutely not. Um, I think the bigger thing um, is not to be discouraging. I think it's just important to have um, the background um, to what we're dealing with and what the landscape looks like. Um, But I think, again, with having the data and the numbers to support what we've been feeling, um, we know that there's going to be an emergence of people, um, especially young Black women, that are going to want to run for office. So with that, I can share a couple of resources and a little bit of advice, Um, not being an elected myself. I'm on the resource end of things. Um, so Nobel Women hosts a training um, where we train folks um, to run for office. And what makes our program a lot different than uh, many programs um, is even though a lot of programs have a big alumni base um, of elected officials that have uh, ran for office and won or have a story to tell um, of what they've done post not winning an election, um, our program um, is the only one that's built currently by um, current elected officials. Um, so you're just going to get a totally different perspective on how we go about doing things, our metric of change um, when it comes to um, focusing on issues. Um, so that's one resource. Um, I also love the Collective Pack and Higher Heights. Um, they're both organizations that are fairly new um, but have made a huge impact um, and helps get a lot of the folks that um, are members of our organizations elected um, through trainings and through um, funding as well for people. Um, so they both hold um, trainings and they um, particularly Collective PAC has a Black campaign school that I participated in before. Um, and again, um, most of these organizations work really closely together. Um, so there's always some programming out there for people that may be interested. So one thing that I think a lot of folks are sometimes intimidated to do, um, but I think um, it's just super important and encouraged is to reach out to current elected officials, um, especially if you're a young Black woman yourself. Um, I think that that is a a resource that, again, you're not going to find in many books. You're not going to get in many trainings. Having that actual hands-on approach to um, elected office 
particularly what you do once you are elected, because I think a lot of programs focus on you getting in office, but the reality is the work really starts after you're elected. Um, so how do you go about, um, what do the committee's assignments look like? Um, what are sessions like? Um, how can you take advantage of like laying up or resource times? Um, how do you engage with community? How do you balance work life? All those kinds of things. Only elected officials will be able to pull, you know, pull you in totally around those things. Um, and then a classic one, but I think it's still very valid and very um, relevant, is volunteering for campaigns. Um, again, you get an inside look in what it takes to run campaigns. And you can understand the different elements of campaigns and how they all work together to um, achieve a particular goal around a person. Um, getting in office to push for certain issues. Um, and I think, honestly, the last thing I'll say is just figuring out your why. Um, because sometimes, um, particularly in Black communities where we have leaders um, that are doing great things and people encourage them to run, but the reality is some people um, don't have to be in public office to make an impact. Um, but if that is your route, I think if you go about doing those things um, in regards to the trainings and talking to electeds and volunteering, it'll become clear to you that you are um, one of those folks that will do well in public office. Um, and again, if you have questions or anything like that, we'll be sharing contact information, um, but you can also check us out at nobel-women.org. And all of our resources are there. Um, but again, I think the best thing is to just get out there, fill it out, um, ask as many questions as possible, um, and good luck with those that are interested in running. Um, I hope you win, and I hope we can add you to our report. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I particularly liked um, the note that you made of, uh, you know, you're not you're not in this alone. There are resources, there are people who have paved the way ahead of you who have done this before, um, who can sort of be there as your support network and who want to see you succeed. Right. Um, because uh, this because our entire country and our entire democracy benefits from better representation. So um, that is great advice. Uh, Lauren, do you have anything you want to add there on resources or suggestions for um, young Black women who are thinking of running for office? Yeah, I think Crystal touched on so much with a plethora of amazing resources. I think the best thing that she noted um, that sometimes uh, gets missed when people are being encouraged um, to seek an elected position um, would be uh, the part of where do we go from here? <laughs> um, you know, we don't want, one thing we don't want is anyone running for office, but especially Black women running for office um, or Black women seeking an elected position rather um, to uh, feel like they are being set up for a failure um, and that is sometimes something that can be a real feeling um, when you don't necessarily feel like you have ever been in that space. It can seem overwhelming. People are using language and lingo and have relationships that you may not have necessarily had prior to coming into a legislative position. And so that being said, um, additional resources um, could really be is um, starting from a grounding standpoint. You know, many legislators started from organizing positions um, or working with political organizations like the three political organizations on 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 this uh, on this, having this conversation today. And so that being said, you know, I even encourage like people to if they're listening to get involved with Generation Progress, um, Next Gen, uh, campus vote project. Um, there's so many to name that are youth specific or to intern um, for or seek a position after graduating for um, an elected official's office. 
um, some of those are paid opportunities. And there's, I know for a fact, there are some black women legislators that will specifically think about the intentionality again about the pay and try to pay their interns as well. Um, so those are just some additional opportunities into what Crystal mentioned that really play into uh, also dispelling the narrative or the myth of who can work for certain offices um, or who can be a part of uh, the legislature in itself. Great, thanks, Lauren. I, so if folks are, um, if we have listeners at home who wanna get more involved with the No Democracy Without Black Women project, how would you recommend they get started? Um, it can definitely start with first checking out the report and visiting our webpage um, that has the report, um, which is housed in stateinnovation.org slash no democracy without black women. I think it's important to first see the data um, and see how that lays out and then be engaged from there. Um, but also using the hashtag as much as you can hashtag no democracy without black women on your social. We actually have a social media toolkit that people are able to download in addition to downloading the data in the report as well. So we want everyone to know that it's a public project, a public um, engagement of a campaign where anyone and everyone should be amplifying this, allies and those who feel directly impacted. Um, and then you can follow our social um, the Twitter for Nobel Women is at Nobel Women One. The Twitter for State Innovation is at State Innovation. So those are definitely ways we're constantly amplifying information, um, constantly sharing uh, news reports, articles, um, legislator profiles and highlights, and it keeps you engaged with the work happening in real time. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And uh, Crystal, um, where can people go to learn more about you um, and your work, uh, whatever, what you're up to um, at uh, Nobel Women? Oh, did we lose her? <laughs> so, and I think, I think Lauren just shared the, um, the Twitter handle for both Nobel Women and State Innovation. So I'll just, um, Nobel Women One. Uh, on Twitter is probably a great place to go as a uh, as a starting point um, to to get up to speed um, on some of the great work that that Crystal and the team there at Nobel Women are doing. Yes, sorry about that. Um, those are the the perfect places to start. And I'll just add quickly: um, when you all check out the No Democracy Without Black Women hashtag, you will see um, all of the things that we've been doing as far as op-eds. Um, information and we had a week of action in May. Um, so you'll be able to see um, and hear directly from legislators um, in regards to their experiences in office, their reactions to the report and how folks can better support them while they're in office as well. Perfect. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, um, Brent. It was great being on the air with you. Crystal and Lauren, thank you so much. That is all the time we have for today. Uh, Crystal Leaphart and Lauren uh, Belor, thank you so much for joining us today. Also, thanks to our producer, Mark Grimaldi. Um, you're listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Mott Community College, a place of purpose and possibility. A place where hard work pays off. A place where no chance taken is taken alone. Forward focused. Making tomorrow better today. For anybody, for everyone. Forward together.
Mott Community College, changing lives for a changing world. Mott Community College, a place of purpose and possibility. A place where hard work pays off. A place where no chance taken is taken alone. Forward focused, making tomorrow better today. For anybody, for everyone. Forward together. Mott Community College, changing lives for a changing world.